This is Play-By-Play Cast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play-by-play guys. For play-by-play guys, by I'm told, a play-by-play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now here's the host of Play-by-Play Cast, Todd Bodet. <laughs> Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay, here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Well, college football got underway last week. The NFL is officially underway this week. Falcons and Eagles playing as I record this open. Welcome back into the podcast, everybody. This, of course, is PXPCast, play-by-play cast, the podcast about play-by-play broadcasters for play-by-play broadcasters, hosted by a play-by-play broadcaster. Professional development podcast that dives into the tips, tricks, process, experience, preparation, and stories in some sort of order like that of some of the biggest and best play-by-play announcers in the business. As always, you can find the pod on social media, PXPCast. You can find me at Joel Godet, J-O-E-L-G-O-D-E-T-T, or you can hit me up via email, J-G-O-D-E-T-T at gmail.com. Looks like the Eagles are going to win. Famous last words. They are going for two right now, and they just got it as I record this. So they're up 18-12. to 12. Congratulations to everybody in Philly on the 1-0 start. Uh, I'm looking forward to college football, though, this weekend because the Ball State football Cardinals are going to Notre Dame. It's going to be a lot of fun. It'll be my second broadcast from Notre Dame Stadium. Obviously, Ball State beat the Irish in basketball last year. That was a fun night. Um, That was a fun game to call. But it'll be my second broadcast from Notre Dame Stadium. I actually called the first women's event at Notre Dame Stadium. It was the 2008 Big East Women's Lacrosse Championships. Syracuse won that year, and uh, I don't remember who they beat. It might have been Notre Dame. I don't remember who was in the final that year. But Syracuse won, and uh, this will be a little bit of a different feel. There will be decidedly more people in the stadium, I think, this time be really cool i've had the chance to call some cool games texas a&m clemson army uh since i've worked at ball state but this one uh will be a lot of fun and hopefully it is a lot of fun for a long amount of time irish looked pretty good last week so did the cardinals but the irish looked pretty good last week so uh we'll see what saturday has in store I can tell you what Sunday has in store for the San Francisco 49ers, and that is a date at the Minnesota Vikings at 1 o'clock Eastern. It's the first game of the year for Ted Robinson on the radio. He did the preseason, obviously, but first regular season game on the air for Ted Robinson and the San Francisco 49ers. And Ted Robinson is our guest this week on Play-By-Play Cast. Uh, Ted, actually, I had reached out to Ted a year ago, I think a year ago, when the 49ers came to Indianapolis for a regular season game with the Colts. And I said, hey, and NFL turnarounds are tight. Um, but I said, hey, you know, I, I don't know when you guys get here and I don't know what your schedule is. But if you had time and you wanted to record an episode of the podcast while you were in Indianapolis, uh, that would be great. And it just didn't work out time-wise. But we had stayed in touch a couple of times back and forth trying to do something over the phone uh, and it just never worked out Ted is the first person in the history of this podcast I'll, I'll give him the credit for this 
to book himself on the pod. I got an email from Ted a couple of weeks ago that said, hey, Joel, I know we tried to connect last year. It didn't work out. Uh, You know, since that conversation, I've discovered the podcast. I've listened to some episodes and we're coming to town to play the Colts in a preseason game. If you had some time this weekend, I'd love to sit down and be a guest on an episode. So uh, my answer was yes. And uh, I drove down to downtown Indianapolis. I live up on the north side. And uh, we taped out the episode you are about to hear. Ted's an interesting guy, though, too, because we will talk about broadcasting football. But we're going to talk a lot about broadcasting other things, too. Because when you talk about versatility in broadcasters, like guys like Ted are the ultimate to me. It's one thing to call football, basketball, baseball, whatever, soccer. It's one thing to call your major sports. Ted does that. Long time called Major League Baseball, has now for a long time called the NFL. Ted also calls the Olympics. Ted calls an enormous amount of tennis. Like, Ted calls a lot of niche-type sports, too, and does that at the top of his field. So we spent a lot of time on this podcast um, breaking down that with Ted Robinson. Two things of note. Uh, that you'll hear at the end of the pod as well, one of which I wanted to address off the top because it's hilarious, so if you don't make it to the end. We recorded this at the team hotel. Indianapolis is a great convention city, if you've never been. Downtown, is it's a very easily walkable. It, it, just, it hosts a lot of conventions. It's great for it. The hotel we recorded this at was hosting some sort of, like, horror convention. So Ted and I are sitting in the Starbucks in the second floor lobby of this hotel while like the demon is walking by the killer from Scream uh, the devil uh, Harley Quinn the Joker walked by a couple times like (laughs) it was just it was a very bizarre experience Um, and then there's just two radio guys in the corner you know yakking about the uh, the intricacies of play-by-play while all of that was happening. So that was interesting. Uh, one other topic that we will touch on, and it's particularly relevant, uh, Nike had not made its announcement about Colin Kaepernick at the time that we recorded this podcast. But at the very end of the pod, we do talk about being the broadcaster for the 49ers, the team Colin Kaepernick was on when all of what has turned into this giant national conversation, uproar, what have you, um, about his protest broke out and what it's like to be a broadcaster, a reporter in some ways. How do you handle those types of situations? Um, We dive into that good perspective um, from Ted on that note as well. Uh, So that is all contained here. But where we start is with his versatility, the myriad of things he calls And if when he started as a broadcaster, he ever thought he was going to broadcast so many different things. Ted Robinson, happy to have on as our guest here on this week's PXP cast. Absolutely not, Joel. I mean, like like a lot of us in our profession, I wanted to play. That was my dream in high school 
um, dealt me a, a couple of reality checks, which in, in the long haul were fabulous, forced me to figure out, okay, what's next? And so this was, this was the, the hope. I went to college to do this. Um, and my dream, so to speak, in college was I just wanted to be the announcer for a professional team, a major league team, and I didn't care what sport. I started in hockey. That was the first opening for me. Um, and over time, to get to directly to your question, over time, what what I I fell into these opportunities in other sports, and I discovered something about myself, which I think we all do in life. And I use the analogy of a buffet line. You learn a lot about a person. You watch them go through a buffet line. And some people come out at the end of the buffet line, and the plate's got two things on it. And that's really what they, I like those two things, and that's what I'm going to have. Other people come out, and it looks like a tapas plate. It's like 10 small samples. And then they'll finish and go back for 10 more separate things. I'm person two. I discovered that, and I didn't know that until I was probably in my 40s. And so the variety is great, and the, it, it's challenging in terms of preparation and mental uh, focus as you as your years advance a little bit but it keeps me fresh and as opposed to the old when i was a younger guy when i was your age and i was doing 150 to 160 baseball games a year now i much more i'm fresher i think and better because of the variety as opposed to focusing and just being the one sport guy you do a lot of tennis, though. Um, I don't want to say you're known for tennis, but I, it's one of the big things that you do. Uh, what was your background in tennis, and kind of how did you come to be so heavily associated with that sport and become kind of such a revered name in that well, area? Well, that's nice of you to say. Uh, background was none. I grew up as a caddy on a golf course, uh, and I played golf a lot as a kid. So I did not have any understanding of tennis other than I understood how to keep score and knew who the players were. I completely fell into the opportunity. It was uh, 1986 and I was called by my person who was representing me said, look, this network, USA Network in New York wants to meet you. So I flew from San Francisco to New York and had an interview with them. And I was 28 years old and they were looking for someone to actually be the, the quote play-by-play play, which is kind of a misnomer for tennis but that's the position they called it for tennis and my immediate response well you know I've got to be candid with you I don't know anything about tennis they said fine we have people who know tennis we need someone who can be the traffic cop and I was given a tryout uh, on a match yeah, actually in San Francisco and that led to a few more uh, tour events in early 1987 and after, I don't know, maybe three or four of these on-air auditions, basically, then they said, we want you to do the U.S. Open for us in 1987. And that started a run of 20, I think I was, 20, well, it was 22 straight years for USA Network, about 27 or 28 total. And honest to God, Joel, it was, it's the most unexpected, unplanned, pleasant surprise I could have ever asked for because tennis has become a significant part of what, what I do. Um, I've made great friends through it. My professional partnership with John McEnroe became a, f a true friendship that I cherish. He's been a phenomenal guy. Um, and uh, the other lesson, I think life lesson is, and I, it took me a while to get this through my thick skull too, is don't swim upstream. There are a couple points where baseball was pressuring or things were pressuring and I may have had to give up tennis and I didn't. And now it's one of the smartest things I ever did. For some reason, I seem to fit with tennis. Tennis people seem to appreciate, tennis fans seem to appreciate. And so at some point you say, okay, this wasn't the plan, but hey, 
if what I'm, whatever I'm doing here works and don't fight it. And it did. It took me a long time to come to grips with that. And now I'm thrilled I did. Well, I'm glad they started you on some sort of small tournament like the U.S. <laughs> Open, too, <laughs> yeah. to get your feet wet. Yeah. Uh, how long did it take you to feel comfortable in that? Um, I feel like every time I embark on a sport that uh, I don't know or that I'm not familiar with, I've talked a lot in recent episodes ad nauseum probably for listeners about uh, doing the CrossFit games, uh, mm. of which, like, I that's my workout regimen. So I know the movements. Mm. I still felt a little bit uncomfortable <laughs> and like a fish out of yeah. water when I broadcast it for the first time. Um, so at what point did you feel like, I'm not afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing here because I'm, yeah. I've got a grasp on it? Yeah, that, that's a great subject matter to bring up because that is the lesson for everybody that listens that does this or for craft is uh, so the first thing when I started doing tennis way way back I got two pieces of advice that were brilliant the first one was the piece that I've kept in my back pocket for 30 years and somebody who was involved in the sport as an agent stopped me and said listen just remember one thing Ted tennis is the one sport where you can't go wrong saying nothing brilliant advice and again, I constantly remember that. And the second piece of advice, which I understood and carries through every sport, is you have to know the terminology. You have to know it's the biggest way you get exposed to the knowledgeable audience is if you don't understand their language. Every sport has its own language. And so I've worked pretty hard. And tennis isn't that complex, but there are just certain things... You know, it's 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 calling lines. Um, you know, you win points. It's it's those sorts of things that understand um, how to say. I think we've all seen this in our country with soccer announcers when various networks here have tried to put Americans in to call World Cup soccer or high-level soccer. And if you're not a hundred percent fluent in the terminology man soccer fans go crazy don't they 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 love their sport they're passionate and they don't like someone who they don't think matches that so that was the lesson up front to me was really work hard on terminology and then to your direct question again for about 10 years i was parachuting in to do the u.s open i was a baseball announcer and so during the summer, it's baseball, baseball, baseball. And then I'd leave for 10 days and come do tennis. That was hard. And the tennis people looked at me like I was a baseball guy. And so I had to, I had to work my way through that. And honest to goodness, it wasn't, it was probably the late 90s before I started to really, I, I had to apply a little extra concentration, go out and start playing tennis, take some lessons, learn about the subtleties of the grips and things like that. And then listen to the announcers I work with about that and tennis i will say this it has a gift for television that no other sport has the greatest players who play the sport commentate when peyton manning is peyton manning hasn't done football yet has he as a commentator you know barry bonds doesn't do baseball commentary i mean the hall of famers in tennis all do com almost all of them do comment i've worked with almost all of them if i can't learn something about the sport sitting for hundreds of hours next to the greatest champions in the sport then that's my fault i'm the dummy then <laughs> so a couple things to unpack there um and let's start on that last note uh when you work with john or anybody of his ilk how much and it's different now because you've been doing this long enough that you know more what you're doing but let's go back to the very beginning where you're still trying to figure it out how much would you just sit with those guys and just be open and honest and say listen i'm not a tennis announcer but uh, you're going to help me become one uh, and and what was their reception like to kind of help bring you on that journey to get you to the point where 
you were comfortable doing a really good job with what you were doing. Yeah, I, 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 I hope I was very open about that. I'd like to think I was. Um, the others, I guess my partners would be the best ones to answer that. But It's a hard conversation I, to have, though, I isn't know. it? Yeah, it is. No, you're right, Joel, it is. And at the, the beginning, the first U.S. Open I worked, uh, Mary Carrillo was my partner, along with uh, a late, great man who's passed away, Barry McKay. They were my first two partners. And Mary walked me around the grounds of the, of the National Tennis Center in 1987 before the Open started, introduced me to people, including a player named John McEnroe. He, John doesn't remember this, but... Um, and she really held my hand through the first one and helped me along those lines. And then really the next person who became instrumental was Vetus Gerolitis, another sadly passed away way too soon. Vetus, I probably did three or four years of the Open with him, and he was an extraordinary person, incredibly generous, very different than the flashy persona that you're young, you don't remember him, but those of my generation who remember Vetus, he was basically... He used to laugh. He used to say they'd introduced him at the Italian Open in Rome. They used to introduce him as La Playboy de Nueva York, the Playboy of New York, and he loved that. That was his kind of his 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 uh, persona. But he was a fabulous guy. And when Vitas left USA Network to join ESPN, that happened at the same point that John McEnroe decided to stop playing, and he wanted to come to the commentary booth. Well, John and Vitas were terrific friends. Vetus gave John a little bit of a reference for me, said, hey, this guy's cool, he'll be good. And that helped, that helped break the ice for me with John. And then it went through uh, Tracy Austin for years, and now in more recent years, it's been, uh, it was Chris Everett. I worked at Chrissy three years at Wimbledon uh, with NBC. And then eventually, really, Jim Courier and Lindsey Davenport in more recent years have been just phenomenal about, you know, these are champions who've helped me and teach me, even to this day, they teach me things about the way the game's being played now by this generation of players. Do you ever have a moment early on where you're like, you know what, I'm not comfortable, and uh, I've got baseball, and this is a great opportunity, and the check is good, but I just feel like a fish out of water? Yeah, there, were, there was one absolute uh, tipping point, um, and it's when I left the Minnesota Twins as a baseball announcer and took a job with the San Francisco Giants and there was pressure put on to to give up the U.S. Open tennis and that's the point point where I I think I just kind of I, well not kind of I did resist and put my back up and said this is the one thing I don't want to give up because I at that point I did give up a lot of side work as well as the Minnesota Twins because I was moving back to California um, and I held on to the U.S. Open and so those first few years of the Giants, I was doing 152 games, basically, and then I'd miss 10 to go to the U.S. Open. And I, that's why I'm saying, in retrospect, this was 1993 when this happened. I'm so thrilled I did. because I, And back then, I never envisioned that it was going to lead to Wimbledon and, and 20 years of doing the French Open for NBC and Olympic work, etc. That was never on the table back then. It was just simply, hey, I'm a baseball guy. But I kind of like doing this one event. And it, it, I, I'm thrilled. I, again, I kind of stiffened my spine a little bit and resisted and, and won that mini fight. And I'm thrilled I did. 
I promise for people that clicked on this because it says San Francisco 49ers, we will talk football at some point. <laughs> um, but I want to ask you, because I called tennis, I've called tennis twice in my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, once on two days notice about five years ago, it did not go well. Uh, and then once again, uh, this past May, when Ball State hosted the Mid-American Conference Tennis Championships, we had to produce them for ESPN3 on campus. Mm-hmm. So I walked into doing a handful of games. Uh, the first one did not go well. I felt like it got better throughout the weekend to where the point at the championship, I felt decent with it. Um, but with that in mind, uh, the, the blanket question that I was just like dying for answers to going into it was, how do you call tennis? And I, I go back to the point where you said you can't go wrong with silence. Yeah. But where is the balance between um, the silence and actually having the responsibility to call action at some point and kind of finding where that that seesaw balances out yeah well for from my view at least joel uh, there was a there's a cardinal rule in tennis commentary on television believe it or not there is radio play-by-play of tennis and it's i i joel has this look on his face and and i've seen that look before because the first time i heard it i had the same look and where i heard it brilliantly was at wimbledon bbc radio does actual play-by-play i couldn't even begin having done this for 40 years, your, your profession, I couldn't even begin to call a tennis match on radio. People do it. All right, so now that aside, on TV, the cardinal rules, you never talk during the point. Um, and uh, look, like every cardinal rule, even I violated that once in a while, but it would hopefully only be when it's a blowout match and you're trying to keep an audience engaged, trying to keep them from flipping to something else. But the cardinal rules don't talk during a point. Um, you try to use the first game the opening games of the match or the beginning games of every set as your setup point like if there's a story to tell or you want to just let somebody know who this Serbian is that's playing and this woman who's risen you know from 150 in the world to 20 you try to do that in the first two or three games of a set and as the set goes along there's a there's an ending point for every set that's when you try to let tennis play out and then ultimately and I'm assuming you had an analyst with you that played or coaches tennis, at some point you understand that's why they're there. And believe me, I learned this very early on with with John McEnroe, and I've used the line a lot, but it's absolutely true. My mother and my grandmother were the only people that ever put the U.S. Open on that cared what I said about tennis. The other millions of people wanted to hear John McEnroe talk about tennis, so set up John to talk about tennis. And that's, again, a rule I think I've followed with all of my analysts. And it's what the great, Joel, you've talked to terrific people in this business. That's what the great play-by-play people have done. Really, the people I looked up to so much were Dick Enberg um, and Al Michaels, because in in our profession, they were the guys that were masterful at setting up their partners and helping their partners shine. And that's really what you do as a tennis. And I said, there is no play-by-play for te- on television. That's, that's a misnomer. You're, you're, in essence, a host. And as I use the phrase, a lot of it's a traffic cop. Making sure that the business of the, of the telecast is done. Making sure that, um, that we go in and out of break smoothly. You set up your sponsored elements. And then allow the analysts. And sometimes it's asking a question. Sure. But... We're also not doing an interview, right, when you're on the air. It's not an interview, so you can't just be question, answer, question, answer, but leading, prodding the analyst to go someplace and then reacting. Sometimes I'll, I, I act as a reactor when John or Mary Carrillo or Lindsay or Jim or Tracy say something, and I go, oh, wow, I never thought of that, or I, 
I, I didn't see that. Or can you really, can you keep doing, I mean, just the typical thing that would be as you and I are sitting here talking and you'd react the same way you just did. Be the guy on the couch exactly. who responds to what they're saying because you've learned something basically. Right, exactly. That, and that's, that's I think, again, this goes across all sports. That's part of a good broadcast it should sound like two people or three people if the case may be just sitting there talking watching a game a match a competition and having a conversation and the greatest skill i'm sure you've heard this from other uh, announcers joel the greatest skill in our profession that has to be employed is listening you have to listen and you have to listen to your partner and it's one of the challenges in television when you oftentimes have someone talking to in our world play-by-play -play world someone's talking to you and occasionally it'll happen even the most experienced producer and I've done this a long time too so I'm an experienced announcer and sometimes I get frustrated because the producer's trying to tell me something and I'm listening to the my partner and I'm trying to grasp what my partner's saying and I can't because but that just that's that's an occupational hazard it just happens and you can't avoid it but but the overall task of listening is vital and much more so on television than on radio um, but still important on radio but on television to me it's essential you cannot be the person that has your analyst say something extraordinary and you don't even react to it because you're focused on something else or someone's pointing at you um, I think distractions during a broadcast are are almost need to be avoided um, I, I really try to limit people around me in the booth especially in football when the the, 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 uh, the football pattern forever has been spotters and stack guys that are constantly pointing and handing and I, I, I that, that drives me personally I just can't do deal with that I need my focus to be on the field the players running in and out and then what my partner's saying I mean, if I, and that's enough focus for me and to be distracted by all this other elbowing and bumping and pointing in this, that to me is, is it, I just don't deal very well with that. One of my, uh, my spotter for football, uh, who's a dear friend, I love him to death, and he does it for free, so, uh, but he will always, <clears throat> he will always from time to time, like, I'll look down and he'll hold up fingers. Yeah. And I'll be like, eight. I'm like, what is eight? I'm like, write it down. Yeah. Um, it's one of those things where it's like I'm trying to, you got six different things going on, and yeah, you're 100% right on that. Um, two more things on the tennis. Uh, one is, you'll probably think is goofy, um, but I think the hardest thing when I called tennis for the first time, and this probably changes by level, but at the collegiate level where they don't necessarily dictate or they don't necessarily display who gets points uh, yeah. Obviously. Mm -hmm. A lot of times a ball will be very close to the line. They won't play it. They'll put their hand up in the air. And for a little while I was like, well, does that mean that it's their point? Does that mean they're giving you the point? Right. And there's no scoreboard, so I'm not really sure what's going on. Uh, what's it like for you to try to figure out how and when somebody has scored? And I'm sure it's different at the U.S. Open level. But being able to have the quick enough reaction so that you're on your job and it's not whoever you're working with jumping in. Uh, and basically doing whatever play-by-play -play there is of the tennis broadcast. Yeah, and there's a big difference. You just outlined, uh, Joel. There's a big difference between professional tennis and college tennis. Professional tennis, the things you just outlined are not a problem. Uh, even in qualifying rounds, of there's there's lines, people that and a chair umpire that that judge the match that basically call make the calls keep the score college tennis is very different and i have done some college tennis for pac-12 network and even i struggled at the beginning 
getting used to what you talked about, which is the player shooting their arm in the air, which means, and the reason is they're calling their own lines. In college tennis, the players call their own lines. There is a chair umpire that overall can rule, but that's a very hard thing in tennis, and this gets deeper into tennis, but if a ball is on the opposite side of the court, on the opposite sideline, or on the deep baseline, it's very hard for the chair umpire to overrule a call that a player makes who's two feet away. The unfortunate part in college tennis is there's a high level of players who will call lines the way they like them, the way they see them, as, or the way they want them seen is what I'm saying. And it's, it's unfortunate. And everybody in the sport knows it. Everybody knows the players who their reputations are, they're going to really fudge on the line calling. And, and it's, it's hard for me to accept that. I don't know how the players accept it, but they do. As an announcer, uh, the other problem with college tennis that we've had is six matches at one time. The college tennis structure, it's six matches simultaneously. And trying to keep the scores accurate on all six is very, very hard. And it depends on the home school and the system that the home school has in place. Now, you did a conference tournament. Hopefully, there was a decent system in place. But I've, I've experienced where it's, it's, it's just a hard thing to do. College tennis is difficult sport for television and we've learned that on Pac-12 Network the conference the Pac-12 conference championships are played in Ojai California which is this beautiful uh, really wooded town up in the hills above Southern California it's uh, probably an hour maybe hour and a half drive north of LAX maybe 45 minutes from Santa Barbara it's a beautiful place it's a public park four courts in one complex and then two courts a couple of hundred yards down a hill. Well, the Pac-12 championships require six matches to be played at the same time. So trying to do this on television was awful because we can't see, physically cannot see courts five and six. There's a chance in college tennis that the championship could be determined by a match on court five or court six. And we have to run a, a handheld camera down there. We have no scoring. It's it's just very, it's challenging. So. The, believe it or not, um, in the Pac-12, I know there was at one point the commissioner, Larry Scott, who came from the tennis world, had talked about trying to employ a team tennis format for televised matches. And the college coaches, of course, went crazy and they rebelled against that. And largely their argument is, well, that's the way we've always done it. So why would we change? And it, it would be very television friendly. But the, but and I thought Larry's idea was great, but I never sensed it got any traction within the college tennis world. Last thing I wanted to ask you on tennis, and this is a broader thing too, and it would apply to every Olympic sport you've done. Um, that would, I guess, you would qualify as off the beaten path. Um, you talked about taking lessons and actually going and playing some tennis. Mm -hmm. How important was that to your understanding of the game, and how much have you done that with other sports that you've called? Not that you've like gone losing uh, mm -hmm. just to learn, but like, how much have you? done that for every sport to just get a feel of what the athletes are going through um yeah that's that's actually good joel i, I tennis by far the most um most of the olympic sports i you know I've, I've called ski jumping and equestrian and those are things i don't really have access to try nor probably the the desire and maybe even in ski jumping the courage so uh, uh what i have tried to do is gravitate towards sports i i ran for a long, long time. I don't run as much anymore, but I ran marathons for a while. So I did triathlons for quite a while for NBC, and I love that because I, I understand endurance sport from that from my own experience of running marathons. Um, I'm now a swimmer, and I swim pretty actively. So I call swimming for NBC. Uh, 
a lot of years and that's a sport I have some understanding of now and I've had I've been in the pool with Rowdy Gaines and Olympic gold medals to had him tell me try this do that you know just little small the equivalent of a swimming lesson from an Olympic champion pretty nice so those things have helped but again they're sports I did synchronized swimming in the Sydney Olympics sorry sorry that's never going to happen I'm never going to try synchronized swimming and whitewater luging and kayaking and uh, I did biathlon one day of biathlon for NBC in the Torino games and those are sports where you just I, I have no identity with the actual performance of it but I have somebody again next to me and that's their sport that's the sport. Tracy Ruiz, whose son is a starting outfielder now for the New York Mets, Michael Conforto. Tracy was my partner for synchronized swimming in the Sydney Olympics. She was a synchronized swimmer, gold medal. So I walked in the pool, knew nothing about the sport, and just said, Tracy, I'm just going to, you know, I'll understand the rules, which is important for every play-by-play announcer. No matter what sport you do, you have to understand the rules. As I mean, and I say the rules, not necessarily the technical rules, but the structure rules. How the sport is judged, scored, competed, why these teams are here, how did they get here, and then who they are. And that's those are the basics you know. And then Tracy, tell me about the routine. <laughs> that was what I did. So Tracy, you talk about the routine. I have no idea what the heck they're doing in the water. You talk about that and talk about how they're being judged and what the judges are looking for. That's all Tracy's job. And Cynthia Potter, who I've done four Olympics within diving, same thing. I know the divers. I understand how they got here. I know a little bit now about what they're trying to do, but it's basically once the diver goes, Cynthia, you take it. It's your talk about what they did, how they're going to get you, why the judges scored them either well or not well. And then I understand how the scores are computed and all that stuff. But, you know, it's, it's really a great lesson because all of us, Joel, you, I'm sure you do it. I know I do it in the ball sports that we know. We probably cross the lines way too much as play-by-play people. We're all, we're all guilty of that. We try to talk. We start talking like we know because we kind of do. <laughs> and we forget that we have someone next to us that really is there because they know, because they did it. These other sports, the Olympic sports, so to speak, are a great lesson for play-by-play announcers because it forces you to stay in your lane. I can't get out of my lane because I don't know anything. I know nothing about, I mean, I knew nothing about whitewater kayaking and canoeing. And it was a fun as heck sport to call. It was great to watch, but I had a guy with me who did it. He was an Olympian. So, man, John, his name was John Lugbell. John, you take it. I I have no clue. How do you ask the right questions and set people up the right way? Uh, Because I remember back the very first time I ever called wrestling. Um, It was at Eastern Michigan. It was a collegiate wrestling meet. And I'm thinking to myself, all right, set my analyst up. I'm going to ask him questions to to put him in the right spot. Mm -hmm. And at one point in time, it looked like one of the wrestlers was doing something. And I said, Eric, what's he trying to do with his head right here? And he just went, nothing. Uh, And I went, well, that that backfired. Uh, So... Do you, what kind of line do you walk in terms of how you lead the analyst to both not make them look silly, but also not make yourself look silly? See, now that story you just told me, Joel, I would say that didn't backfire because you probably asked a question that anybody watching would ask or a lot of people watching would ask. Um, I got thrown into I want another random sport I did for NBC. I did the weightlifting Olympic trials for them when well, I was 2004, I think. Now, I mean, I've lifted weights in my life, but not like these people have lifted weights, okay? So you have some understanding of barbells and all that stuff, but not 
anywhere near the level they're doing. So I just sat there and I had um, uh, Ray Bentley was my partner. Ray Bentley, the former football player, but he, Ray had been apparently involved in some competitive weightlifting in his life, so he understood. And I just sat there and I asked, but I'd ask the same questions, just like you said. Ray, how, 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 you know, how many how many plates is he putting on here? What you know? How, how does his back hold up when he's getting down? I mean, some of it is elementary, and some of it is may sound silly, and certainly did sound silly, I'm sure, to the educated weightlifting fan, which is .0001% of the audience. <laughs> and so you have to understand there are people that are watching and listening that are sitting home asking the very same thing. And so, look, we, we all do this. We always try to think of... So it's in my case, it's my, I remember my grandmother, when my grandmother was still alive, she used to watch things I would do and she loved it. She didn't know a darn thing about 98% of the sports I was calling, but my grandmother would just enjoy watching and listening. So I try to think about it. So grandma's watching. I gotta make sure grandma stays in. And I have very strong views on this particular point that I think without question, John Madden is the greatest analyst and television sports in my lifetime and John McEnroe and I know I'm biased because he's my friend but I think John McEnroe is right alongside and the thing they have in common is they do not ever speak away from my grandmother my grandmother could listen to John Madden and love what John Madden would say during a football game because we you know what John Madden never said during a football game a gap double red dog blitz Listen to John Madden. He never talked that. He didn't give Spider you... Spider 2, Y Banana. Exactly. He didn't do that. John Madden... Now, again, he was on national television, so he was talking to the, quote, big tent audience. We understand that. He wasn't on NFL Network with a micro-football-savvy audience. But John never tried to sit there and show you, I know so much about football. John knew football, but he didn't need to tell. What he did was he made football entertaining for my grandmother and your aunt and, and, and somebody who's an art major in college and doesn't really care about football but liked watching that game. John Madden was great at all of that. Absolutely brilliant. And that's the, the, to me, that's a thought that I keep in my mind, and every analyst should keep that in mind. Now, it's hard because sometimes we're on Tennis Channel. Tennis Channel, we have a tennis savvy audience and we're encouraged to speak up to our audience so I have to modify my my view on this when I'm on tennis channel but when I'm doing tennis on NBC no big tent audience so speak generally not generally but simply and make the sport understandable for those who don't follow it or maybe watch it twice a year Let's run with the A-gap uh, part of that with John Madden. And uh, if we can transition to, to your current job with the 49ers, uh, how much do you talk football? And how much is it more of a Big Ten approach? And just the way that you describe things when you're – basically, how descriptive can you be? And, and how much will you drop in terminology that the football-wise person should know? How smart do you talk about the game? Yeah. Uh, that's been a learning curve for me because I had been in college football forever and the 49er job came up. This is my 10th season now and I had done just some NFL football random games for Westwood One in the past, but nothing on a regular basis. So I had to learn the NFL and it is a different game than college football. So I was in a learning curve at the beginning and I think now in 10 years, I'm obviously a little more comfortable with the subject matter. And so I do employ more football oriented terms. And I think here we're talking about a sport that most people do know. And they're, they're, the baseline of knowledge is much higher. 
um, especially pro football. Um, it's different by medium. So in the preseason games, and we're talking here in Indianapolis, I'm on television tonight. So the preseason games, the 49ers have Tim Ryan, my partner, and I do the TV call. So we can talk more football. And Tim has a telestrator, and Tim can do all the things he did on Fox for years. Then we switch back in week one to radio, and now we're radio, and it's a radio call. And I have to be descriptive in all the essentials of radio. Where's the ball? What's the down and distance? What's the score and time? Who's on the field? The personnel groupings on each play because that changes dramatically. Um, and so it's harder to get into the deep football talk, and it's an adjustment for Tim as the analyst. He has to condense his thoughts into tighter windows just because I have to call the play. And so that that's the adjustment. Um, I wind up doing far more football talk, your question, in the pre- and post-game show with Tim, and then during the week as part of the job, there are radio shows and things I'm a part of during the week talking 49er football and there you too try to get into more football conversation but again I'm very very cautious this is my personal view again about crossing that line of I'm not I'm not a player I'm not a coach I'll always when I get into football oriented things I'll try to say hey I'm the guy that asks the questions of people who tell me these things and that's how I learn because I've never been in these grease boardrooms with these guys. And Joe, Joe Staley, who's the veteran player on the 49ers now, he's our senior player offensive tackle. And he, he'll once a year, twice a year, he'll stop me and say something like, nobody really knows. Like even Tim, he's a Tim Ryan played in the league for how many years? And unless you're in the meeting room, you don't really know. And that's a commonly held belief with players and coaches. So I try to honor that. And so when I'm talking football during the week on, on our flagship station in San Francisco, for example, I try to make sure, I, hey, if I'm saying something that's a deep football thing, I'd say, hey, this is what I've been told. This is what I've learned from asking questions. It's not me. And that's probably not, uh, Joel, do you understand? In our world today, that's probably not the smartest thing because everybody has a take, everybody barks, everybody acts as if they know. And I I just was raised differently and in the business differently, and I can't go down that road. Is there, it, it, does it, I don't know, does it inform your description a little bit to an extent too, or will you try to speak to your grandmother? Like, will, will you ever use the word three technique on a broadcast? Or, or I mean, you, you talked about a gap or... Um, I mean, trips is pretty common, but, you know, yeah. we, we'll do three by zero wide receivers, right. so they'll, they'll call it tray open. Um, or, you know, we'll be in 22 personnel, two backs, two tight ends. And a lot of times they'll say they're in 22, two backs, two tight ends. So yeah. I'll marry those two together. Um, but how, where does the, the line draw in terms of how you speak about the game in that regard? Yeah, I, I, I try to be explanatory in that regard. So, like, I wouldn't say 22 personnel, but I would just say, you know, and it's it's third and six, two backs, two tight ends, real quickly, or it's three it's three receivers left, one right, um, tight end slot left, very quickly like that. Um, but I mean, there is some point you have to assume knowledge in our world. In the NFL, as a radio announcer, you have to assume a level of knowledge. So I can't do football one on one or as the old book line, football for dummies. I mean, that the NFL radio broadcast is not the place for that, but there would be a point where I would say, okay, I can't cross this line, and Tim Ryan, my partner, or anybody's radio partner, can come, be the one to come on and say, hey, that was they ran 22 package there, and, and the defense reacted this way. That would be his role to do that. Well, then uh, you can ask him what a 22 package right. is, and it furthers the conversation. Right, and and, and so what, what I think maybe what I try to do 
instead of using the technical lingo, like I would never say, oh, so here's a here's an example. The the, the uh, We've, uh, the 49ers played some teams over the years, and now the 49ers are using it themselves that spread their defensive linemen very across a wide plane. And in football lingo, it's called the wide nine. Philadelphia Eagles did it very well a few years back. So at some point, I'll, I'll call a radio when we line up like that, and I'll say, okay, the 49ers have, you know, the Buckner on one end and Armstead on the other end, very wide. It's the wide nine formation rushing the passer, boom. And then Tim can come back at the end of the play and say, yeah, that's blah, blah, blah. So occasionally you'll drop a lingo in like that. But I'm, again, it's really uh, our job. We're, we're, com- we're broadcasting. We're supposed to communicate to the audience what's happening. It's not me trying to show how much tape I watch. And I do. Look, I watch tape. I don't watch tape the same way a coach watches it or a player that way. I'd be silly to suggest that. But I try to watch to learn formations, what players are doing, how the opposing team tries to cover. If you have three receivers on one side, how they try to cover. I watch that stuff. But my job on Sunday is not to go on the air and say that. My job is to set up my partner or or at least afford him the window to say that, to talk about that. Um, It's not for me to impress, try to show off, hey, how much I know. And and I, I do think occasionally I'll hear other people and I think they're lapsing into that. And it's, it's just a habit that I fight like heck to stay out of. Well, if you watch that film then, too, I guess it informs what you can say to Tim yeah. to get Tim to talk about something. Absolutely. That makes sense. No, absolutely right. No, and I think that is it's become part of the... It's, I think it's standard now for play-by-play people. Is if, In football, for example, you need to watch. It's very hard. I do college football on Saturdays. And I'll have a game next Saturday. And uh, UNLV will be the non-conference team in this game and I will not have seen them play. There is no tape of UNLV and that's hard. That's going to be a hard game to call from that standpoint because you're going in blind. Um, college football has become you're doing it. It's become by far and away to me it's the hardest sport to call now is college football because of the speed of the game in terms of the pace of play. You're now easily getting to 200 plus plays in a college football game on a, on a very common occurrence. The number of players on each team, the lack of of, there is no uniform policy about uniforms. So people can have double numbers all the time, they, depending on the outfitter, whoever your equipment or... Uh, the navy blue numbers on a black yeah, exactly jersey were right. really great a couple years ago. No, exactly. I mean, this happens in, in, because nobody polices this stuff in college football, um, unlike the NFL where there is enforcement on this in college. And so identification of players has become extremely hard, depending on where what stadium you're in, your press box location cannot be good. And... So I said it's 200 players, 200 plus plays, the speed of the the pace of play of the game, constantly running different personnel packages in and out. When I finish a college football game, I'm probably a little more exhausted than I am a 49er game. The NFL is actually an easier sport to call because... Your sight lines are generally pretty good. The uniforms are clean and clear to read. The information you're given by the NFL is phenomenal. The teams are, are helpful. I mean, it's, it's just college is a challenge, and it forces the focus to be really, really intense. If I told you you could only have these three things going into a football game in terms of knowledge, <laughs> what do you need to know that you could do a football game with? Are you asking about tool? What three tools would you have? Or I, I mean, I get sure it could be tools, it could be nuggets, it could be information. But if I told you you were doing a game 
in an hour. Yeah. What are the first three or four things that you say, okay, I need this, otherwise I can't do it? Well, you need, I mean, the first thing is obviously is depth chart. I would need the, of the whatever, if it's two teams I haven't seen before or if it's one team I haven't seen, I need their depth chart. You need their roster, probably a numerical ordered roster. And then the other thing I would look at would be, a, you know, if, in one hour notice would be a stat sheet. And what I would look at would just be, say, okay, who's caught the ball? I mean, who are they throwing the ball to? What's their split? How much are they running versus how much are they passing? Um, who runs back kicks and punts? Although kickoffs are diminishing in football now for safety reasons, punts are still a big part of the game. So I need to know that. That's one of the things you, you lose track of in football if you're not careful, is you need to know your special teams guys. Um, so those would be the essentials. I mean, really, those would be the basics. And you and need a pair of field glasses. <laughs> I don't use them. I use Hunter's field glasses, and I have pretty good eyesight, but still with corrected lenses, I have pretty good eyesight, but I still use the field glasses because 26, 28, 29, depending on the style the, the, the style of the, num- of the number that's on the jersey, I st- in the NFL, I get caught between 26, 28, and tw- or 36, 38, 39, you know, depending on how that number is styled and the jersey gets crumpled up or a guy tucks his jersey up a little bit, sometimes I don't know. That's hard. Informationally, what do you? What would you like? If I gave you a minute with a coach, these are the things that I want to know about the way you're going to play. What's most important for you to have in your back pocket about a team when you go to a broadcast? Yeah, how they play. Well, yeah, how much shotgun, which now is becoming more the op- standard operating procedure. I would ask how much shotgun. Do, do you go under center at all? In college football, that's a question. Do you go under center at all? Because uh, a lot of teams, the answer to that's no. Um, how many defensive backs do you start the game with? Like, do you start with a five defensive back? Do you play six defensive backs? Um, how much motion? Motion is pretty standard in the NFL. I think it's becoming pretty standard in all football now. And obviously, quarterbacks use man and motion to try to determine the defense to get a pre-snap look at the defense. Those are kind of the basics. Um, that I would ask, but it, again, when I watch, I watch an opposing team before a game. That's the, those are the things I'm trying to figure out myself. I just want to know how. You know, it used to be huddling. In the NFL, there are still huddles. In college, there's a lot of teams that don't ever huddle. But uh, you know, how do they how do they break the huddle? What kind of formations? How much motion do they use before the snap? Yeah. When they end up, do they end up with you know three receivers on one side? What percentage of the time? Um, how do they play in the, in the goal line situations? Do they get under center in a goal line? Do they bring in a big, you know, a, we, we say in football, a jumbo package? Are you bring in four linemen and a fullback and no wide receivers when you're trying to punch the ball at the goal line? Last week we played a preseason game in Houston, and Houston had third down about two feet away and went shotgun and threw a pass. I was like, I remember a day when we just lined up in a quarterback sneak. You know, Tom Brady would do it, Cam Newton would do it, but uh, now it's it's that sort of that, that's football in 2018 that's just football so anyway those are the kind of things as a play-by-play person that i'm focusing on in football getting ready for a game and now we also as you know joel we have access to tons of information and crazy amounts of information and it's too much and so what our jobs i think a lot of our jobs become editing is going through that information during the week and sifting out the, the handful of things that you think are going to be applicable in a broadcast that might be informational to a, to a viewer, listener, and not just minutia, because there's a lot of minutia. 
and pro football focus has become this resource tool that a lot of us are using and a lot of what pro football focus sends you is stuff that coaches need and that players need the fan at home the fan sitting in the stands the fan sitting at home with a beer don't care about the number of out patterns versus slant patterns and all this other technical football stuff. Coaches need to know that. Run pass percentage on first down. Yeah, yeah I mean, some of that some of that can Sometimes be Sometimes it's good. You know, yeah. some, of the, some of the simple stuff like that can be, hey, look, if a team runs 80% on first down, that is a good note. I would want to know that. But the technical stuff that gets broken down on patterns and blocking schemes and stuff, man, people at home, I, I don't think I think a very, very tiny percentage of listeners and viewers care about that. Well, and a lot of times, and I feel like this is a crazy statement, um, but a lot of times the games I feel most prepared for are after the broadcast, the games I feel the worst about. Because I almost feel like I have too much information. And it's the weeks where I feel rushed and I'm held basically to my essentials. Like, what do I need to know? What do I need to get done? And then maybe some extra stuff on the periphery. Sometimes I feel like those are the games that wind up getting called best because you're not just drowning in a sea of, you know, knowledge, so to speak. Well, I think, Joel, that's a very great point, and it goes to the something we talked about before we started here, that everybody has their own comfort level. What works for you as an announcer, right? We all none of us who do this do it the same way we're not cookie cutters for some people obsessive preparation is is works for them it's successful it's it, it's their comfort blanket so to speak um, i learned i had two incredible experiences early that are just random but they shared this one common component about that and I, I actually worked a game with the legendary johnny most the announcer of the boston celtics and again, I was 22 years old and out of work, and the story's too long to bore you with the details of how it happened. But I got a call at about 4 o'clock in the afternoon to drive over to Piscataway, New Jersey, to the Rutgers Center, and the New Jersey Nets were in their early years of playing there. I had worked for them for a summer when they were still on Long Island. But anyway, Johnny Most had a bad throw. He was doing the game solo, Celtics Radio. It was 1980, and they said, can you come over here? And Johnny needs somebody to sit there in case he can't finish the game. Excuse me? So it's literally 4 o'clock, and the game's at 7.30. So I get in the car, and I bust my butt, drive through Staten Island, get all the way. It's an hour and a half drive for me. I get there. So it's 6 o'clock now, and I've got a coat and tie on. And I go in the press room, and I grab the notes. And I walk over and introduce myself to the Johnny Most at the table. Like, ah, come over here, Ken, and sit down. Hey, nice to see you. Johnny Most had in front of him the center score page ripped out of the program, the game program, that simply has name and number. Of each, pl- of each player on the nets. And he had a pencil, he had a cup of coffee, and he had a bottle of chloroseptic, which is a spray anesthetic for your throat. I have a couple, yeah. Right. Okay. That's what he had in front of him. So I have the notes. Ah, don't worry, kid, you have those. You keep those in front of you. I don't need that. So Johnny Most calls the game. It turned out to be a one-sided game, so he was able to finish the game. I d- actually went on the air with him in a little pregame and halftime with him and a little bit postgame, and I kept score, so I had the stats for the players. Johnny Most didn't care about it. He called the game, and it was almost as if it was a he was a dramatist. He was calling the game as a passion play. The Celtics are the good guys, and whoever is the other team are evil. Johnny Mose was beloved for this. And the point was he had no information in front of him. And then some years later, I worked both with the Oakland A's and then with the San Francisco Giants with Lon Simmons. And Lon is in the baseball. He's a Frick Award winner in the Baseball Hall of Fame, deservedly so. And 
but my other partner with the A's was this legendary announcer named Bill King. Polar opposites. Bill, obsessive preparation. Stat minutia to the max. Lon was the Johnny Most kind of guy. And Lon would come in with his baseball scorebook and a pencil, and he had the batting average of sheets in front of him, but that was it. And Lon was the guy that one day he just said, you know, I've always thought my job is to just look at the game and talk about what I see on the field. Wow. In that simplicity is an incredible amount of wisdom. And so as over years, I've gravitated more towards that Johnny Most Lon Simmons way, which is, yes, you do your preparation. Yes, you have it hopefully in your head, but your job, you're there to watch the game and talk about what you see and then set up your analyst and ask your analyst questions, obviously. Um, but to be buried in detail leads to what you started this with, Joel. Sometimes you can get so buried that you don't see the game or you lose sight of the bigger story of what's happening in the game and why it's happening instead of the minutia about, hey, he's you know batting 286 after 8 p.m. on Thursday nights against right-handed pitchers whose last names start with K. And sometimes you'll hear baseball people do that and they get swamped in that stuff and it's nonsense. Nobody at home cares about that. Do you miss Major League Baseball ever? You know what I miss? Um... I miss people and I miss stories because that's the beauty of baseball. There's no sport that matches the people and the stories in baseball. And you never laugh in any other sport the way you laugh in baseball before every game. And it's interesting you asked that question because a few nights ago I went over to the Oakland Coliseum. I hadn't been there in a few years. And I ended up sitting in Bob Melvin's office, who I had known as a player and whatever. And... Uh, Billy Bean, who runs A's baseball, who I knew as a player with the Twins, was in there, and a few other people. And I sat there for less than half an hour with them. And they just wanted to talk. And they were asking me questions about tennis and asking me questions about the 49ers. And it's 15 minutes before first pitch of a Major League Baseball game. And I finally said, guys, look, you guys got a game here. I think I need to go. I mean, are you kidding me? Where else does that happen, Joel? And there's no sport. In football, I mean, Kyle Shanahan is fabulous. There's no way on God's green earth Kyle Shanahan will ever talk to me three hours before kickoff of a 49er game, let alone 15 minutes. I mean, Bob, Bob Melvin's there. He's got his lineup card in front of him. But, hey, there's 162 of these. It's just another game. I mean, yes, they're fighting for a playoff spot. But that's when you say, what do I miss about baseball? That's what I miss. And I had the uh, incredible over my years with the Giants, one was the amazing opportunity to watch Barry Bonds play and to get to know him well. And then secondly, I would sit in the equipment guy's offices for countless nights and listen to Willie Mays tell stories before games when Willie would show up at the ballpark. And I used to actually wrote some columns back in my Giants days about this for a, a San Francisco Chronicle section. And I would call them Willie Mays Unplugged because that's what it was like. It was just Willie Unplugged. And he would just tell stories. And I would sit in the corner and keep my mouth shut and just listen. And Willie and a few other people, and sometimes Willie McCovey would be in there. And, God, you know, where, who, how was this dumb kid from Long Island ever going to get this opportunity again? And I, I, I miss that tremendously because there's no other sport where that will happen, where you can listen to two, in this case, Mays and McCovey, two of the greatest to ever play the game. And they would just tell stories and unfiltered, which, of course, in repeating, I would have to filter, but and complete trust, understanding that you sitting in the corner, yeah, you're one of us, you're not going to you're not going to say something out of this you shouldn't say. Let me ask about stories while we're on the note. Um, and obviously in baseball, you get a different chance to tell stories. 
how do you tell stories calling a football game and where do they fit in particularly in a day and age where it is so much of go, go, go. Yeah. On radio, it's almost impossible, I find. NFL games, it's almost impossible. Um, college football on radio was also hard. College football on television, which I do now for Pac-12 Network, you can. And I think that's, a, I think that's an important part of college football, despite all of the stuff that swirls around the game, which is increasingly taking the college out of it and making it football. Um, but that still at some level there are a lot of kids who are kids young men that are playing that aren't going to play professional football and they have and some of them are playing with that understanding they know hey i'm here to college and i've got a scholarship and i'm going to get an education but this will be the end of my football life it's cool to tell stories you obviously your role at ball state you see this a lot in the pac-12 you go to usc every kid at usc was recruited there believing they were going to play college, uh, play pro football so a little different dynamic the reality is only a small percentage will but they all go there believing they're going to play oh, no, don't get it wrong they all go to ball state believing they're going to play there too. is that right <laughs> it's just yeah. a much different reality after the fact yeah see that's interesting to hear that as a, i haven't been exposed at, at that level in a while um and it's just I, at USC, eighty yeah. percent of them are right. At Ball State, yeah. eight of them are right. Well, so, yeah. no, that's right. <laughs> but so there, there are terrific stories, and I think that's one of the jobs again. That's it's it's an obligation for me as a play-by-play announcer, and and really as our on our it's a production team on television. It's our obligations to find some of those stories out and talk about them, yeah. and and we lean a lot on the schools to help us with that. We lean a lot on the coaches. Um, Jim Mora was fabulous with me with that when Jim was coaching UCLA, and I would uh, Jim would get on a would get on a conference call during the week with us, and I would ask him these kinds of questions, and he'd tell me stuff about players, about certain guys and their background and how they acted in the meeting rooms or how they led groups of, of other players, and those kinds of things are fun. And Jim Jim had spent some time in the broadcast business before he went to UCLA, and now he's back in the broadcast business, so he had an understanding of what we do. Um, I'm blessed with the 49ers now to have John Lynch as our general manager. John had just spent three, four years in the broadcast booth, so he understands. I can go to John, and I'm, I'm an employee of the team, so I, but I can go to John and say, John, help me understand why you just made this move, why you did this trade, so that when I'm on the air talking about it, I'm not saying something wrong, stupid, inflammatory. You know, a little background information helps. It helps present what's really truth as opposed to, I mean, you know, he's not going to tell me. Like, for example, I get asked this question a thousand times in the last year. I've been asked, what was the real story behind the Jimmy Garoppolo trade? I don't know. John has never told me. I've asked him. I've asked him in social settings and private settings. He's never told me. So even there, there's a line. John's the GM. He's not going to share everything with me. But in some ways, he will tell me, hey, here's what we're thinking about. Here's why we did this. Or here's what, we're, what, we, what may happen with that. And it helps me and Tim, my partner, present things in a sensible way. And, you know, we're in a world where everybody's got opinions. Everybody's shooting their mouth off. And so much of what I hear is wrong. It's mind-blowing. But it's just, it's its a world where everybody's supposed to have an opinion. Well, sometimes I still think at my advanced age, your informed opinion is a good thing. And that's what I try. I try. And I ask a lot of questions. And sometimes I don't get the answers because it's privileged information. But sometimes, in, in John's case, he gets what we're doing here. He'll give me enough that I can, I can say, okay, here's what they're thinking about when they play this guy here or when they don't play this guy there. Let me uh, end on a note similar to that in a lot of respects in that uh, if you go to 
and I had Brad Sham on as we record this this most recent episode. And when I went to Brad Sham's Twitter page right before we did the interview, the second tweet he had was a retweet of Beto O'Rourke. Um, if you go to yours and you scroll down through, there are some things that, you know, John Favreau and things of that nature, yeah. and you will find the same thing if you go to mine. Uh, and certainly you are the broadcast voice of a team uh, that had a quarterback on it that is the starting point of a yeah. very serious national conversation at this point. Um, how do you balance, you know, because I always, you know, as long as I'm not inflammatory, as long as I'm just matter of fact, like, like, I, I am who I am. I'm a, I'm a broadcaster, but I'm also this. Yeah. Uh, so, like, I have a public persona. How do you balance um, being the voice of the 49ers, but also being Ted Robinson? Um, yeah. And some people will like that, and some people will not like that, but you are who you are, and being able to kind of manage uh, that publicly. Yeah, that's a, that's probably, well, Joel, I guess that's one of the two or three most significant issues I think all of us going forward. You're a younger guy, so you're going to really deal with it for a long time. Um, going forward in our business is exactly that, and I've heard all sorts of arguments from all different positions about you should use your you should use your platform to say things that are important. My wife and my daughter were in tears in my house on election night of 2016. I was on the air. Yeah. And so that's <laughs> so that's powerful. So when I watched my wife and my daughter, my grown adult daughter, married daughter, when I watched them crying about what was happening, that impacts you. And you say a few things. But I, I guess I settle at the point where you used the word inflammatory. I try not to be inflammatory. I, I don't, I'm not a big fan of Twitter. I don't use it a ton. Um, I understand there's value in it. I, I get that. I also have seen and felt firsthand the destructive qualities of Twitter, so it, it's a mixed bag for me. Um, taking heavy social and political stances is not a big thing for me. Um, you touch specifically on the 49ers, and yes, I mean, look, I lived it. I saw it from day one when Kaepernick sat for the first game. He had sat in... Uh, in street clothes for two games, which no one paid attention to because he was in street clothes. And then his first game where he sat amidst the Gatorade tubs. He didn't kneel. He didn't do it prominently. He was trying to basically hide amidst Gatorade tubs. But he clearly had a plant in the press box who took a picture of it and put the picture on Twitter. That's how it came out. I was calling the game on television with Tim Ryan. We didn't even notice that Kaepernick was sitting. And, of course, that became this big blow-up. And to, to shorten the story where... The very next week, we went to San Diego to play the Chargers in the last preseason game, and Kaepernick met a Green Beret named Nate Boyer, who had just tried out as a long snapper for Seattle and hadn't been caught, but Nate Boyer had reached out to Kaepernick and all the blow storm after this first game. They met in a hotel. I saw them sitting at a table, kind of like we're sitting here right now, Joel, in Indianapolis. They were sitting at three tables over. Eric Reed, the safety, joined them. And that night, we went to play the Chargers in the preseason game, and that was the night that Kaepernick first knelt with two or three players alongside because Nate Boyer told him. That was a military advice. This is what we did in the military. If we had an issue or a disagreement, we took a knee. And so to watch over the course of that season as we traveled around to see that message be totally conflated into attacking the military. And of course, the guy in Washington has taken that now to an extreme level. It's totally, has nothing to do with what originally started and what has been carried forward by, by people. And so, for example, we will have a player later today when the 49ers take the field here at Lucas Oil Stadium to play Indianapolis, we have a player in Marquise Goodwin who will, 
if he does what he did the first two games, he will stand on the sideline for the anthem. He will raise his clenched fist in the air. He's protesting, or his statement is about unjust imprisonment. He had a family member who was wrongly imprisoned for over 20 years. Wrongly imprisoned. Catastrophic in his life. He's a young man. And that's his position. No one really takes the time to ask him, why are you doing this? Everybody thinks, oh, you're, you're screaming about, you know, dis you're dissing the military, dissing America, the police, uh, in, uh, you know, injustice, people being shot. We all understand all those stories. Marquise Goodwin has a very specific reason he's doing that. And that's what's been lost to me in this entire conversation around the country. And now what's happened is it's no longer a football conversation. It's it's about the social issues, and those are important. And, I, I you know, it's a very small number of total NFL players that are doing it, but I don't think it's going to change personally. And the other question, Joel, and this goes way beyond play-by-play -play podcast, but it's a question that I think needs to be asked. I have asked 49ers executives this question. We have two sports in our country, professional sports, where the vast majority of the players are African-American. One of those sports also has a very high percentage of fans who are African-American. That's the NBA. The NFL doesn't. You go to an NBA game, it's by far the most racially diverse crowd, I find, in professional sport. Why does the NBA not have this problem? Why does the NFL have this problem with an issue that I probably should be careful? It's not really a problem, but it's an issue with, and it's an issue with a small but a very strong-minded percentage of players. And the NBA doesn't. I think the NFL needs to ask that question. The NBA has not dealt with this, and uh, that, to me, going forward, if I'm in the NFL, if I'm in Park Avenue in New York, if I'm an NFL owner, the 49ers owner, I thought was incredibly strong when he abstained on the anthem vote that was held during the summer. And I think it was, a, and I, I know enough that I believe it was his conscience. He was voting his conscience and he wasn't trying to insult his fellow owners, which is why he abstained. But he wanted the players to understand there has been no, not one shred of blowback for any 49er player that has done this, not one. Kaepernick stayed in quarterback an entire season that year that he was taking the initial stance on that position. And the owner of the 49ers donated a million dollars to Kaepernick to, for his causes that he was representing. So long-winded answer again, very complicated issue. Um, it's, I guess, it would be, I would love someday for somebody to be able to have one of these forms like you have, Joel, where you just spend an hour or two talking about it because it needs full conversation. And it's sadly in our world today, and especially the Twitter world, there is no nuance. And it's not a 140-character issue. It's way deeper and way more. And the, and the football part of it has totally been lost. It's been completely melded. So when the Kaepernick question comes up to me, it's no longer a football question. It has nothing to do with Kaepernick, the football player. It's that Kaepernick should be in the league because he took this stance. And that, to me, it's two separate questions. Is Kaepernick out of the league because he took that stance? Is separate from should Kaepernick be in the league because he's a good quarterback? To me, they are separate questions, but not to 99.9% .9 of the America right now. Those questions have been fused together. People want to find uh, Ted Robinson in 140 characters. Uh, how do they track you down? <laughs> well, it's uh, at Ted J. Robinson. Uh, but uh, I would, I'm cautioning. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an erratic Twitter tweeter. Erratic tweeter, I should say. So, um, yeah, but that's... Uh, and. Uh, 
Instagram, Ted J. Rob 49 on Instagram. That's the other, that's the other social medium that I use. Ted, this was fun. Thanks for doing it. Appreciate it. Well, Joel, thanks for driving into Indianapolis amidst a rainstorm. And by the way, for the folks that are listening, this, <laughs> this has been great, by the way. <laughs> the background noise is one of the great shows. This is a great convention city. You live here, Joel, so you know it. I come here a lot for Olympic-related events. And there is a horror hound, is it called? Horror hound weekend convention. The, the cost, You can't believe how many costumed people have walked back into the 49ers closed rooms back there, <laughs> the meeting rooms and the meal room. People walking in, in, in like Jason Friday the 13th costumes. Oh, the devil walked by about four times. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, a, it's pretty much fun. But it's what makes this city, for those who've never been here, Indianapolis, downtown Indianapolis, one of the great American urban stories of my lifetime, what they've done for this downtown. Ted, thanks. Thanks, Joel. That's Ted Robinson joining us here on PXPCast. And in the last hour, while you were listening to that, uh, the Falcons almost won. So I spoke a little too early in the open of the podcast. Uh, Julio Jones makes a catch here in the end zone, but comes down out of bounds. Totally out of bounds. All right. Hey, it's never over till it's over. Although this podcast is decidedly over. Um, we, we have we have gone long today, but I hope you enjoyed it because it, it was a lot of fun to have that conversation with Ted and um, to talk about the things we talked about. I know it says on the, the title, and I, I refer to this in the pod, I know it says San Francisco 49ers next to his name in the, uh, the episode title, but Ted is so much more than that. And I'm excited that we got to dive into kind of the ins and outs of his tennis career and getting used to sports that he was uncomfortable with and kind of that whole process because a lot of us that are younger broadcasters, I mean, that's a way to get a foot in the door. I mean, like I, 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 I do men's gymnastics and women's gymnastics and I, I do CrossFit. Now, granted, I do CrossFit, so I know what it is, but like a lot of things that a lot of people call are not stick and ball for major sports. And uh, I loved kind of his perspective on uh, the way that he learned about it, the way that he garnered acceptance from those communities um, and so on and so forth. Uh, so thanks to Ted for, uh, for reaching out and uh, letting me know he was in town and being on the pod with us uh, this week. Next week, uh, next couple of weeks, uh, we will go to the uh, network level on uh, the ESPN side of things. Uh, Roy Philpott will be with us, and uh, Rich Hollenberg will be with us as well over the next couple of weeks. So uh, stick on back for those here uh, the next two Fridays. Until then, though, we are out of time. I will talk to you, uh, and uh, well, we'll talk a little bit about how South Bend went next week. Um, Happy New Year, by the way, to all of my members of the tribe out there. And, uh, well, I'd say have an easy fast, but we've got another episode before that. So uh, they're playing Marshmallow. I'm out. Talk to you next week. This is PXPCast. We're out.